This is a podcast from Meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode 26 of A Culture of Possibility, a podcast about community-based arts and cultural democracy and all related things. My name is Arlene Goldbard, and I am speaking to you from Lamy, New Mexico, which is just outside of Santa Fe in the southwest of the United States. And I'm going to turn it over to my co-host to introduce himself. Hello, I'm Francois Matarasso. I'm a community artist. I'm uh, currently speaking to you from Nottingham, which is a city on the edge of southern and northern England. Depending on your perspective, you like to situate it either in the north or the south. And uh, it's evening here, whereas I know with Arlene, it's morning. And we're very happy to be joined by Beverly Nadas. Beverly, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. Um, I'm sitting on the unceded traditional lands of the Puyallup tribe of Indians, which is one of the Coast Salish tribes in Tacoma, Washington. That's the colonizer name. And um, it is even earlier here, an hour earlier than where Arlene is. Um, it's a misty uh, winter morning. And um, I've been living in Tacoma for six years. <clears throat> um, I was a professor who created a program in art for social change at the University of Washington. Very unique program because it was studio-based um, with courses in eco-art, body image and art, art in a time of war, labor, globalization and art, um, cultural identity and art, and the artist is visionary and dreamer. And I wrote a book about it that's called Arts for Change, Teaching Outside the Frame. But um, I came to the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, about 20 years ago. Before that, I was teaching in an MFA program at Goddard College. And before that, I was tenured at Cal State Long Beach. So I have done a lot of bouncing from one part of the country to another. A lot of the moves have been um, precipitated by environmental and economic issues. <laughs> I don't think I would have um, traveled as far as I have had it not been for the disabling environmental illness that I developed in Los Angeles and um, forcing us to move to a rural village in Western Massachusetts. And um, I can say more about that, but I am an artist and a writer and a mom of a young adult son. And I am partnered with a uh, Dr. Bob Spivey, who brought me to the Institute for Social Ecology back in 1991 as a guest artist. And the two of us co-taught 
a course in activist art in community at ISE for almost 10 years in the summers. And um, so my work has been very influenced by social ecology as a theoretical framework, although not dogmatically. <laughs> Thank you, Beverly. Can we, can we begin by going back a little bit and, and you tell us a bit about how you became an artist and, and, and secondly, how, you, how your journey took you into, into social and ecology and activist um, work? Sure. Um, I was a very expressive child and I've been writing about um, in the new book that I'm writing, which is called Rewilding Our Muses, Creative Strategies for Navigating the End of This World. Um, I'm looking at when my muses were uninhibited. And before the age of seven, I was a singer, a dancer. I played improvisations on the piano. I made altars. I talked to trees. I talked to bugs. I created rituals and ceremonies out in the backyard. My parents grew a lot of our own food. My first chore was taking out the compost at age three. <laughs> and I just recently watched some movies of myself eating flowers. That was one of my activities <laughs> at age two. So I think of myself of being attracted to beauty as a healing tool very early on. Um, it wasn't until I was around seven when my parents decided that I was a piano prodigy and um, I started singing solos in the school choir and I, I started getting praise from teachers about my drawings that I became um, focused on approval for my art, which was a very different and very inhibiting um, thing, I think, ultimately, um, to need that spike of dopamine that I'm doing a good job, um, doesn't, does, it can sometimes block the creative flow. And so I've been spending most of my adult life trying to get back to that <clears throat> uninhibited creative flow. And when it happens, it's wonderful. My parents were very much against my becoming an artist. I am the granddaughter of very poor immigrants um, who were escaping pogroms in Eastern Europe and Russia. And um, so I was supposed to use my brain to make money. <laughs> and it was a scandal when I, I just couldn't stop making art. And they were like, you're just supposed to enjoy art. We didn't want you to think of it as a profession. Um, but I got a full scholarship to uh, graduate school in Canada at the Nova Scotia College of Art, and they couldn't fight with me about a full scholarship. <laughs> and um, they did try at different times, my mother in particular, to redirect me, but I kept getting... Uh, what's the word, um, recognition in the New York art world for what I was doing. And so it was very hard to dissuade me from the path. And what, what did draw you away from that, uh, as you very fairly say, that, that seeking of approval, which is one of the things 
we don't talk about maybe enough in the art world, that there's a lot of <laughs> approval and a lot of seeking it. So what drew you away from, from that towards activist art, which maybe, maybe it's, uh, well, maybe it's seeking a different kind of approval. Well, my father was an activist and in fact was blacklisted. Um, in the 1930s, he, like many young uh, children of immigrants, went to free college in New York City, City College. Everyone there was either a socialist, an anarchist, a communist or a fascist. You had those choices. <laughs> and so he... He played football and he got in with a bunch of scientists and the scientists were forming a cell and he became a member of the cell. This was a family family secret. I did not learn about this until I was 32 when my father came out. Um, I knew that he gave speeches in Union Square. He talked about talking to the workers about fascism. He was very anti-fascist. Um, I knew that he had sold newspapers in Harlem, but I didn't know that they were communist. And that was a big, I thought he, I thought I had pink diapers, not red ones. Um, but when I got recognition in New York, in the New York Times for being an activist artist, I think both of my parents who suffered enormously from the blacklisting, they both had PTSD from it. Um, I think my father felt at that point that I needed to know that there were risks at being exposed as an activist. My mother got on the phone and said, you'll never get hired. You'll never get a job. And you'll never work in this town. <laughs> right. And um, the irony, of course, was the job at Cal State Long Beach was offered to me because I was a New York artist who'd been written about in the New York Times. And I called my mom. I said, Mom, I got a job because of that article that you were so nervous about. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. She forgot about it. So um, it's th that history of being someone who is engaged in social issues um, from a very early age. Discussions around the dinner table were about inequities and injustices and civil rights and and uh, feminism. And, um, you know, I, it, that was just where I lived. <laughs> Ironically, my two older brothers who really experienced the hardship of the blacklisting more than I did, are much more conservative politically. <laughs> um, one of them voted for Brexit. He lives in Northamptonshire. Um, so, <laughs> um, they didn't know that my father was a communist until the day he died when I told them. He never came out to them. So I think at some point when I was in New York City, I got in with a group of artists who were doing political work. Um, Lucy Lepard was partly responsible for that. She discovered one of my installations that was about being unemployed. And she said, oh, this is the new paradigm because I was having unemployed people come into the gallery not knowing it was a gallery. I disguised it as an unemployment or an employment agency. And so I was creating a relationship with my audience that she hadn't seen before. Um, and 
she got so excited and she put me in all these shows and um and then she she co-founded pad political artist documentation distribution and the next thing i knew i was in this cohort of people doing work that was about many different kinds of social issues um and you know uh, when I was in grad school in Nova Scotia, I shared a studio with um, Bruce Barber, an artist from New Zealand who was a Marxist, and he already had a master's in um, in art history, and he was very sharp, very intellectually sharp, and um, he had me reading Paulo Freire, he had me reading John Berger, you know, all these people, Ivan Illich, and so I was pretty clear that I wasn't going into the art world to become a big name artist. I was going there to raise consciousness. And I remember sitting down with Merle Eucles and, and Martha Rossler after we had been in the show in London uh, that Lucy curated called Issue uh, Social Strategies by Women Artists. It was back in 1980. Um, and we talked about how being Jewish, even though I wasn't raised in a religious home, um, can inform something called tikkun olam, to repair the world. Arlene knows this well. I didn't know that term, but Merle and, and Martha taught it to me. And, and Merle was noticing that almost all the Jewish artists, women in New York that she knew, we're doing projects that were about social service. And it was fascinating. And now that I'm in this eco art group that I've been part of since 1998, I, it's dominated by Jewish women. <laughs> it's like, what is going on here? We all have been programmed to not make work just for ourselves. We have to make work for community. It's not enough. It feels maybe selfish to just do it to heal your own trauma. You need to heal collective trauma at the same time. Yeah, and we do get around. I will put, I will put <laughs> myself somewhere in that group. Um, well, let me make another distinction, Beverly, which, which I think is really interesting and relevant here. You know, when we invited you to be on the podcast, I was saying to Francois, some of the artists that we interviewed before, Dave Lowenstein, um, Amber Hansen, um, and Reina Hernandez from South Dakota, they'd made work about um, the environment in, in different ways, a water mural mm -hmm. and in Vermilion. And, you know, Dave does uh, is doing this sacred red rock project now in, um, in Kansas. But um, the other distinction is... Uh, sort of implicit in what you said, which is some people are making work about issues for community, mm -hmm. and some people are making work with community, mm -hmm. expressing the, the issues that are organic to that community. And maybe if I can, uh, you know, put a, 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 a bit of theory in there, the, understanding the foundational idea that the people who are the closest to the lived experience of a challenge are also the people who are best equipped to respond to, to that challenge. Mm -hmm. And 
So one thing I, I admire about the work of yours that I've seen over the years is how you've both had a gallery presence in which issues have, have been in the forefront. Tikkun Olam has, has been in the forefront. But you've also had a community-based arts practice that's very deeply collaborative with people who may or may not see themselves as artists mm-hmm. per se. Um, I wonder if you can tell our listeners, just pick a pick to describe one of the projects that fits into the latter category mm-hmm. um, uh, that you would call maybe community arts. You know, let me just footnote here and say, I'm kind of allergic to the rubric social practice, um, although a lot of people use it, but I would say that's the knife <laughs> that is used to pair these two different kinds of arts away from each other, right? Mm-hmm. The folks who, who are saying I'm a social practice artist are usually live right on that fence. But I think you live on both sides. <laughs> and, and tell us a little bit about the community-based work. Yeah. Pick, pick whatever you want. I love that you describe social practice in that way, by the way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, two, I want to describe two pieces very quickly um, that were done since we moved to Tacoma. Um, when we first moved here, we knew that there was a huge problem with the port of Tacoma. Um, it is native land that has been given to the Puyallup tribe, in 1854 with the Medicine Creek Treaty. The whole port is part of that treaty, but it's been violated thousands of times. And it is now filled with Superfund sites, um, which for those who don't know, are super polluted places that the Environmental Protection Agency has designated as in need of immediate cleanup. (laughs) And yet um, the corrupt powers in the port and in the city of Tacoma have allowed more and more fossil fuel industries to enter the port. And there was a big fight just before we moved here to prevent a methanol factory from opening, and it was successful. And 350 Tacoma and 350 Seattle uh, worked with members of the local tribes and environmental activists of all kinds, scientists, to defeat this project. But right on the heels of it was another project to put in um, a liquefied natural gas refinery. And a corporation called Puget Sound Energy, which is not a local corporation, and it's a multinational with fingers in Canada and Australia, but they pretend to be local. They put in this refinery without any permits. And 350 Tacoma was having a very difficult time educating the public. People were very um, unaware that this was a problem, that this refinery has uh, can contain 8 million gallons of very volatile gas that if there's a small accident there, it could blow up um, not only the city of Tacoma, but 12 miles in every direction, like five Hiroshima bombs. So people weren't responding to this campaign because they were terrified. (laughs) And I thought there has to be another way. And so with funding, I was able to lead workshops for different festivals in town 
And I had a few people who collaborated with me and we had people reimagine the port free of fossil fuel. And people did collages and they did drawings and we started hanging them up in the 350 office with the intention to project them on walls all over Tacoma. Um, we probably generated over a hundred images that we wanted to project from, you know, children and adults, many of whom thought when they first came into the workshop, I use natural gas in my home. I can't be against this project. And you're saying, no, this is not what you use in your home. This is liquefied natural gas. It's, it's made from frack gas. It's probably one of the worst things we could have in Tacoma. It will be making methane 24 seven um, as part of its uh, process. And so it will increase um, the carbon in the air in terrible ways. Um, and so the project was going really well and we had sites to project the images. And this was February, 2020. And the project never was able to happen because we couldn't find places where people would gather to see images projected on walls. And at that point, I retired from my position at the university. I no longer had funding to do the project. And um, things at 350 Tacoma got a little bit wacko. And so um, it's been on hold ever since. Um, and the project of the refinery is still in litigation, although they've completed it. They got permits. I don't know how, because I mean, there were so many public hearings, so many protests, so many people who got arrest, arrested. And there's a wonderful movie that was made by the Native uh, Daily Network locally called Ancestral Waters that talks about the activism to stop this project from going forward. So that doesn't have like the beautiful, happy ending sewn into it. Um, and some community art projects don't. They are more about process rather than product. Um, I continued to do some things with some younger artists um, during the pandemic for the windows of 350 Tacoma because they weren't able to have meetings there due to the lockdown. But um, we made banners to try and get people excited about um what could be emerging from the fires? What seeds were being germinated in the fires? How could people reimagine things even when things seemed totally despairing, even with the smoke of the fires? Um, and so we made beautiful murals for the windows and that was a fun project with four young artists um, that I did. Um, and then Bob and I decided we needed to do something in our neighborhood. And um, our neighbors, a lot of them were new to the neighborhood just before the pandemic, they moved in. And I talked to the people next door, I got very close to them. And they said, we have a corner here, right on the intersection. Could we do something with that corner? 
they knew I was a permaculture designer. They were really into gardening. And I told them about my project on Vashon Island. I did an eco-art project there called Eden Reframed um, that was to demonstrate how to heal toxic soil. And um, the soil in the south of the Puget Sound is very contaminated because there was a smelter in Tacoma that belched out particulate that included arsenic, mercury, cadmium, and lead. So a lot of the soil um, has been remediated in parts of North Tacoma, the richer areas, but many places still have very contaminated soil, including Vashon Island. So uh, we, Bob's organization, um, Social Ecology Education and Demonstration School, got a grant, I got a grant, and we created this eco-art project that uses permaculture design to demonstrate how to use mushrooms and plants to clean up toxic soil. It also has a food forest, it's in a public park, and it has a story hive in its center that has gathered stories from farmers and gardeners about why they plant seeds in a time of ecological crisis. And that library of stories is still there. 11 years, no, it's 12 years later. Um, the project has had many stakeholders. I moved off island the day after it opened. So I told our neighbors about the story hive and they got so excited. They said, can we create a story hive here to talk about how the pandemic is affecting us? And I said, yes, let's do it. And I made a poster uh, a flyer and put it on the front porches of neighbors in, you know, a radius of several blocks. And we brought together a couple of dozen people um, in the summer of the beginnings of the pandemic. And we built this thing together. We had no idea what it was going to look like. And it still exists today. And it's filled with people's dreams for the future. What will our future look like if we can really create a sustainable ecological future. Thank you, Beverly. The fascinating stories. And, and I really like the, the spectrum of scale um, of the projects that you've just described from mm -hmm. huge campaigns to, to prevent <laughs> major industrial uh, polluting and, and dangerous uh, things to, to a very local neighborhood garden type type project. One of the things I wanted to ask you about the the scale of the challenge, the environmental challenge, mm. for example, but also in other projects which which look at um, the legacy of colonialism or racial justice or social justice. Um, I'm also thinking of, of say, work in prisons where, you know, the, the, uh, the, con the context within which the work is, is, within which the work happens is so dominant that it's impossible to imagine how a, a community arts project, however, <clears throat> however well, imagined, executed, 
productive in itself, how it could change that thing. How do you, and I, I'm all the way through, I, I was very struck by this question of approval. And how do we, how, how, in your work, how, how do you reconcile the scale of the challenge with the scale of what we're able to do? Because in the same, you know, I, I work on small projects with a, a, a small number of people because that's actually that relationship is real and it and it's productive and so on. But um, so I'm I'm interested in in uh, how how you see that um, in your own work. That's a wonderful question. Um, I think one of the most important things that. Um, I've been gifted with is a meditation practice through my relationship with Dr. Bob Spivey, who is a lay ordained monk in uh, Vietnamese Zen lineage and has been practicing uh, meditation since he was 16. And the two of us um, did many retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh, um, just before we married, I did a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh that was for activist artists. Wow. And um, recently, right after Bob was diagnosed with stage four melanoma, we decided we needed to create a sangha, a little meditation mm. group. Um, and we renovated our garage. It was going to be my studio, but it's now the Zendo. And every Thursday night, uh, we gather with 10 to 12 people and we've been reading Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet by Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. And one of the things that constantly um, plays out in my head when I get overwhelmed by the scale of change that needs to happen is that these small pods are where the scale needs to happen. The change needs to happen in these pods of groups. And I've learned this from emergent strategy, from the resistance of um, groups that have been oppressed forever. Um, groups like, um, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter groups, the indigenous resistance groups, mm -hmm. queer rights, women's groups, they have all started in kitchens. And, <laughs> um, you know, tea, having tea together. And it, it's a very slow process, but sometimes it happens and creates something that is so unexpected, like, you know, gay marriage. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> whoa, what happened? Um, things that we never felt the momentum would get us there in this lifetime, and it did. So I am of the point of view now that um, there's magic that is occurring, lots of it, that we can't see under the radar. And um, people are having conversations now in this threshold time that we're moving through, um, it's not post-pandemic, it is pandemic, and it's still, um, it, 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 people are shedding skins, 
and they're having to come to terms with an enormous amount of grief and they're coming to terms with a reality that many of us who were artists long ago, you know, started making art about social issues decades ago, we were aware that the Reagan era was going to unfold into something like this. We could see it. And now so many more people can see it. <laughs> and, you know, they're feeling it in their cells. And so the question is, having, you know, being able to educate people and find ways for people to create their own sanghas, um, their own communities of mutual aid, um, of transformative justice, justice of, um, and trauma healing. Um, that's what's going to get us through this time. And yeah, I'm very optimistic. <laughs> I have to be. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd throw myself under something. But um, uh, I'm not ready to be compost right now. I want to see, um, you know, the mycelium <laughs> um, moving this energy through. And I that's use... Lovely. I use a lot of metaphors that come from permaculture design to help ground me. Um, you know, interbeing, which Thich Nhat Hanh talks about. There's some, something's happening in the collective. And it's, it, I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of coming into my witchiness. <laughs> I was born in Salem, <laughs> Massachusetts. So, um, you know, my father was a scientist and a materialist, and this is reality, and this is, and and all my life I've had this skeptical part of my brain, but I'm now in a place where I'm like, hey, what do we have to lose by creating magic with each other, doing spells with each other? We have to do this now. It's certainly one of the things that I've learned from Thich Nhat Hanh and, and uh Zen Buddhism the the notion that of impermanence, you know. Mm -hmm. So even a materialist like your father would have to accept that uh all materials eventually uh mm -hmm. return to to atoms and and mm -hmm. change into something else. It just happens on a different time scale than the one we tend to think about. That's right. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm, you know, as we talk to people on the podcast and as we explore our own experience and our own work, I'm really interested in the extent to which uh, these non-scientistic understandings of the world mm -hmm. are em emerging into um, at least a level of, uh, if not approval, that word we were using before, at least a level of acceptance that allows them to be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I wrote a book of a decade ago, um, in which I talked about these two paradigms of data stand in which everything can only be measured, weighed, and counted, and the Republic of Stories in which everything has its story. I still see that paradigm shift in process. It's not that the folks running data stand or corporation nation or whatever you want to call it <laughs> have given up on, on their idea. My goodness. But it is that growing numbers of people see that multiple ways of understanding reality can coexist and that our, the interventions that we make can be not necessarily 
only over in the weighing, counting, and measuring department, but can also be in how people feel about things, Mm -hmm. in the rituals that they engage in, as you say, in the stories that we tell each other to understand the world. But I think that one thing that ends up being true for a lot of people in the space that you're working in and in the other spaces our podcast touches on is that you're always in this antagonistic relationship with the dominant culture um, in this, not that we're starting the fight necessarily, but that um, you need to find resources somehow to do the work. You need to find space Mm -hmm. to do the work and the challenges that are put to the work are are almost always coming from this place of, can you guarantee that this will produce a 12 percentage point change in, you know, this thing over here. As we've been talking on the podcast with different people who are doing community-based work, talking about support has been one of the through lines Mm -hmm. because, A, it's so different. I mean, in Europe, where half our guests or so come from, there's actually money that comes from public sources and some very progressive private sources. Um, And in this country, of course, it's it's a somewhat different situation. You mentioned when you were introducing yourself how how when you were at the university, you had access mm-hmm. to a certain degree of resources just by virtue of being connected to an institution. So so tell us, like the work you're you're engaged in now, how is that work supported? What are the challenges in supporting it? What are the prospects for supporting it? How much of an obstacle is that? I would say that it depends on how ambitious the project is. So the Tacoma Story Hive project was completely um, separate from any institution, and we chose to do that. Um, it was a mutual aid project, so everybody contributed who participated. Um, the supplies were mostly scavenged. Um, we gifted our labor, and we gifted it with joy because it was so much fun to be making cob. <laughs> and dancing in the cob um, on the corner and talking to neighbors walking by. I mean, it was, there was no um, feeling of being exploited (laughs) Um, or having to measure for an external supervising organization. Um, At several points, I had the option of applying for grants through the city of Tacoma and chose not to. Um, because I wanted this to be an independent project. Um, I didn't want any overseers. And people in the group said, did you get permission to do this? I said, no, this is disobedient art. We didn't ask for permission. And it's a reclaiming of public space. Um, And I you know, was very influenced by um, conversations with Jay Jordan, about, um, you know, the project at the ZAD, Bob and I went to visit him there. And, um, you know, the idea of squatting um, and squatting in an urban space is so um, uh, in alignment with who I am as a subversive teacher. So, um, but, you know, it has to be a small project in order for it to be sustainable in this way. And I think it was perfectly tailored for the pandemic. Um, Now I'm focused almost entirely on writing. 
um, because I want to get this book done um, and provide models of emergent strategies to people who read it, especially for younger people who are dis, dis, disenchanted with the capitalist art market, but they're still very creative and they want to make work in service. So um, I want to provide examples of people who are doing that in different parts of the world. Um, similar to your book, Francois, you, you know, where you have all these examples of projects that people can be inspired by. Um, but many of the ones that I'm going to be highlighting are just random ones that have come in through the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute and the Institute for Social Ecology, various places that I've learned about these projects. And um, they're mostly under the radar. You're not going to read about them in uh, the mainstream art uh, online places. So it's not the Basel <laughs> art show. And, and when do you think that book might be ready? I mean, it sounds fantastic. Um, I'm hoping it'll be done by the spring. It's really dependent on, uh, you know, I may have to self-publish in order to get it out that quickly, but um, that's my goal. Fantastic. So, yeah. Well, we salute you. We can hardly wait. I mean, one of the things that we do in these podcasts is um, post links on um, meow.net, M-I-A-A-W.net, and we'll have links to your website and, and the pro projects and, and books you've mentioned. And um, down the road, we can add a link to your new book. Great. That's wonderful. So I, I know you've listened to a few of our podcasts anyway, Beverly, and I'm wondering, you know, with, with the kind of stuff that we've been talking about and the evident listenership, what else would it be important for people to know mm -hmm. about the kind of work that you've been doing, what you've been thinking about, what matters, mm -hmm. um, what they might want to be aware of? Um, I think it's really important for people to not get caught up in, um, I need to make my work in this context only, or you know, this, you know, selling my work on Instagram is a no-no. I mean, creating certain kinds of purist attitudes about how to be an artist right now, I think is contradictory. Um, we need to touch people in whatever ways we can. And, um, you know, I'm seeing a hundred years from now, a community that is rising from the ashes that has storytellers. It has mural makers. It has people who know how to create ritual and ceremony. It has people who are um, able to facilitate in very joyous ways how to work with grief and rage and very difficult emotions. Um, and so being able to plant those seeds now through the work that you do is key. Um, and if you do it as an educator, as you, if you do it as a therapist, if you do it as an activist, doesn't matter. Um, there's no, um, I think for many of us, we wear all of those hats at once. 
and um, and um, and I also think it's really crucial that people rest. <laughs> um, listen to the Nap Ministry uh, podcast um, because <clears throat> a lot of us feel the urgency, and we can get into a kind of burnout place because we're so panicked. And what I have learned because of my history with a disabling environmental illness, which I've recovered from, fortunately, with cancer, which I recovered from, fortunately, is that resting more will give you more to give. So... Um, That's a very wise yes. thing. I've, I've, <laughs> I'm still trying to learn that. But it, because it, I mean, you're absolutely right. I believe it. But at the same time, you always feel this pressure to to do the next thing, to to meet the next expectation, <laughs> maybe maybe to to be approved of by the person who says, "Yeah, that was a good bit of work you did." I'll take that away. I'll take that away to to rest more. <laughs> I, I was interviewed by someone who asked me if I had like a, you know, if I could say a street name, like what would I be called if, I mean, street name, I'm ancient, so how do I get there? But the only one I could come up with was Relentless, and which is, I think, a fair description of who I am. And I know Francois and I, we have our drivenness in, in common, and, and it, 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 it helps us a little bit to... Um, Tell the other one not to be so driven, but I'm I'm not as good at taking my own medicine as I am at building it out. So I want I want you to know that I appreciate that advice. I'm trying to practice it. I've got to read the nap ministry. You're like the tenth person who told me that. <laughs> no, it's a it's a brilliant. Um, if you don't want to take the time to read it, the um, there is a podcast um, that is. I'm not thinking of it right now. Uh, what is it called? Um, I was listening to it just this week. We'll uh, we'll find it and we'll put a link in the in the uh, yeah. notes for the episode. Don't worry. It's an interview with the author, and um, she's amazing. Um, okay. Well, I'm not good at taking naps myself, but I have learned to pause, um, and during the growing a food time of year that's one of my pauses is just getting in the dirt um, and when I'm not able to access that I go into the studio and pause there or I go into uh, ecstatic dance um, with some friends and I just shake all the stuff out of my body as best I can because there's a lot that we're all processing right now Well, Beverly, we want to say thank you for being with us. It's really been wonderful and inspiring talking to you. I'm totally, <laughs> it's funny to feel inspired to like ratchet it down a notch, but I do feel inspired to do that. So when we ring off, I'm going to, I'm going to explore some ways to make that happen. Oh, beautiful. I, I know Francois has some parting words too. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Beverly. It's been, it's been such a, a, a pleasure to listen to you. I th one of the reasons that we do this this podcast with alternating voices from Europe and from America is because 
it's always so illuminating hearing about contexts and situations that are I suppose almost like in a parallel world yes it's the same but it's also all different and uh, it's been very very rewarding to hear you so thank you and I'm, I'm so grateful <laughs> you're gonna take a nap I am too but um I wanted to thank you both so much. It's an honor to speak to both of you. I'm so glad that your podcast exists um, because it's a resource that I can share with uh, the people in my Facebook group, Arts for Change. There are over 6,000 people in that group, and hopefully some of them have been inspired by all the people you've brought into the podcast over the past few years. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks so much. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.